0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to New Books in South Asia, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel, and today I am speaking with Dr. Lisa Bjorkman. Dr. Bjorkman is an Associate Professor in the Department of Urban Affairs at University of Louisville and is currently also the Humboldt Research Fellow at the Max Planck Institute for Social Anthropology. Dr. Bjorkman has been on this podcast two times already. Do check out her previous episodes on this website. Today, however, we'll be chatting about her latest book, an edited volume titled Bombay Brokers, that was published by Duke University Press in 2021. Bombay Brokers is a collection of 36 character profiles that each center a ubiquitous yet liminal character in the drama of urban life, The Broker. Also known as the fixer, the agent, the tout or the recruiter, the figure of the broker appears in popular imaginations as legally and morally suspect, often associated with practices of illegality, especially bribery. Brokers are also indispensable in getting things done in major cities all over the world. So put together the profiles in this book, tell a compelling story about the maverick labors involved in smoothening the creases of the contradictions that emerge in a city that is a heady mix of inspiration, equality, grit, and creed. Welcome, Lisa, to the, to the podcast and the show. I'm so excited to have you here to discuss this wonderful, eminently readable book, Bombay Brokers.
0: Uh, hi, Sneha. Thanks so much for inviting me again. Uh, it's always such a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Yeah, well, this is your third time on New Books Networks. I won't bother you for a long introduction about your journey into academia. What I would love to know instead, staying with the theme of this book, is what drew you to Bombay slash Mumbai? How did you start your long-term academic romance with the city?
0: Yeah, it is It is a bit of a romance, isn't it? You know, people often ask me this question, this question of why Bombay? Um, and I think... What I've come to realize is that the story of how I originally landed up in Bombay is maybe less interesting or important than the question of what keeps pulling me back there. Um, and the answer to that question, well, I mean, it's tricky, you know, because as an anthropologist yourself, you know, Sneha, that the way that we uh, narrate our personal histories um you know, the explanations that we might give for what we do or don't do, they sometimes can have an unclear relationship with why something may or may not happened. Uh, So why we make the choices we do. Um, But that said, I I think I can say a few things confidently about, you know, what keeps me engaged and, uh, you know, back in Bombay whenever, whenever I can be. So the first thing I, I guess I would say is that I keep writing and researching in Bombay because, there are so many fascinating and curious puzzles to chase around and to try and make sense of. So I'm, I guess I'm a a curiosity driven kind of a person by nature and Bombay quite simply uh, captures my imagination. Um, so it seems that each time I kind of manage to figure something out, if I'm you know trying to to solve some puzzle, uh, then the minute I figure one thing out, there's some other fascinating question that that seems to require I run around chasing around after answers to it. Um, But your question is really interesting because it begs the broader question to my mind is what makes Bombay so curious and so full of puzzles to pursue? Um, It seems to me that that Bombay is just sort of, uh, there's so many low-hanging puzzles that one might pick up and run around. And and in fact, you can see that uh, this book is testimony to how many fascinating things there are to study because we had no trouble rounding up... Uh, you know, many dozen people to to participate. There's a lot of ethnographers uh, running around this city uh, asking interesting questions and following their curiosity. So why is it that Bombay is so full of puzzles? And, I mean, I guess I can't say anything comparative because my work has been mostly in uh, Mumbai, although I have start- recently started some other work in the city of Napoli in southern Italy. But... Um, I guess the first thing that comes to mind about you know maybe what makes Bombay so uh, full of curious puzzles could be, um, you know, I could just say that over the decade and a half that I myself have been researching and writing in Bombay, the face of the city itself has changed so dramatically that sometimes it's unrecognizable so there's something about the the kind of contemporary moment uh, and the way that certain things are changing particularly the built fabric of the city um you know i I was thinking um just the other day about uh i remember when i was working on my first book about water in the eastern suburbs uh, back in 2008 2009 i used to frequent this series of uh, ring wells, the sort of you know above ground surface wells in the eastern suburbs, and I would frequent them because this is where some private water tanker operators would uh, they had taken these wells out on lease, and they were using the water to provide to local construction sites. And it was this really interesting um, space in the city. It was a former jasmine farm on private property that was sort of under litigation, and the trucks would come and go and use the water to. Uh, provide to construction sites and then the area around the well had also been leased out by the landowner to migrant construction laborers uh, seasonal construction laborers who were working on those same sites so it was this really interesting kind of like zone in transit and, um, and I found it really fascinating and then a couple years ago I was back in Bombay and I was in that in that area of the city for some other sort of unrelated work, and I popped by just to see, you know, how are the wells? Because it was a, a really interesting site, and I couldn't even find the property uh, where they used to, where the entrance used to be located, where the trucks used to come and go, because the entire area had been, um, you know, sort of re-landscaped. There was new roads and new configurations of space, and. And it was really amazing because that whole, that whole kind of world of, you know, the jasmine farm and the bore well and the, and the, you know, the, it used to be an agricultural area and the construction labor was all because of the below ground surface herb, surface water, this freshwater well that was, um, that was below the surface, which presumably is still there, of course, you know, an aquifer is, is still there. Um, However, the above ground landscape had completely transformed, all of which is to say, I think maybe it's the breakneck uh, pace of the change um, that makes Mumbai Mumbai such a generative site to research the global present, because it yields so many contradictions, this kind of um, change. So, for instance, in my first book, Pipe Politics, um, I write about this temporal disjuncture—the way it played out in one particular way between this sort of really fast-changing above-ground city and the longer-sighted planning horizons of the water supply planning and water distribution network. So, for instance, you know, you can build slum redevelopment housing for fifty thousand people on some, you know, former industrial site that doesn't have a lot of below-ground network. Uh, And you can put those buildings up and move people in pretty much as fast as concrete can dry. But then to recalibrate the below ground hydraulic system um, at a scale of Mumbai's water supply, that takes a lot more time and planning, even if there's plenty of aggregate supply. So one of the things I learned in that project was that... um, Some of the the contradictions that inhabited the water infrastructure were born of this kind of temporal disjuncture between the rapidly changing above ground city and the the other kinds of temporalities and materialities that were shaping the below ground water distribution network. So I guess it seems to me that Mumbai is a city that sits at the intersection and, and maybe even the sort of, you know, forefront of Um, historical churnings, and it throws up these kinds of contradictions, which of course is what Bombay Brokers is um, all about. And I guess, so so the last thing I'll say, just, you know, this is where Bombay Brokers comes in. It's in this context uh, of, you know, all of these contradictions. The thing, one of the things that pulls me back to Bombay again and again is the city's and, and its residents' remarkable creativity and sense of humor, so, you know, you called it a, a romance, and it truly is. I, I really do. I love the spirit of Bombay. I love the energy. I love the theatricality. I love the playfulness of the city. And I find that Bombay and Mumbai cars have, have an amazing sense of humor. And I can't, it's not a small thing. There's something about it that that is really staggering. And, you know, people manage to crack jokes in the face of all of the contradictions and adversities that attend everyday life in such a, a complicated city. So sometimes I think to myself that, you know, when I grow up, I, I want to be a little bit more like Bombay.
1: <laughs> that, that's a that's a very beautiful um, thought. <laughs> I, I'm, but I will say that as a ethnographer an of Hyderabad, I would like to plug in and say that hyderabad also hyderabadi's also have a great sense of humor so i think a uh, comparative uh, you know cultural identity as humor of um, city city dwellers is is uh, must be done soon lisa <laughs> but coming back to, yeah we're coming back to mumbai so this wonderful book bombay brokers is such a unique ode to the city um, it's such. It's a. It's a lovely ensemble of profiles that brings to life the the labors and knowledges that grease the wheels of urban politics and keep the city of Mumbai moving. And uh, I was curious to know when did you start thinking about the broker in particular, and how did this book and this edited volume sort of come together?
0: Oh, thanks for asking this. Um, you know. Okay, so as you mentioned, the, the, the kind of ethnographic heart of the book is these 36 character profiles. It's an unconventional sort of book, so it does. Um, it's helpful to, to, I think, in order to understand the arguments of the book, it's helpful to understand sort of how it came into being. Um, so the 36 profiles, each is written by a different author, and we're mostly anthropologists, but the, we also are artists and um, writers filmmakers, architects, theater directors. um, And then, so we have these 36 profiles, which are then organized into six thematic chapters, uh, development, property, business, and so on. Um, And now the important thing about understanding how the book came into being and its arguments is that these six themes didn't come before the writing of the profiles. Uh, but the the themes came out of the material itself and out of the two years spent thinking through and working with the ethnographic material. So let me just say a little bit about um, how uh, how this whole thing sort of came together. Um, because and, and the reason I think it's such a it's such an important thing to emphasize is that I do think that. Um, and I'll talk maybe more about this later if we get a chance um, about the kind of methodological intervention that I think this book makes, um, which is which has been really uh, generative and, and rich for thinking um, and opening up new kinds of research questions. So. So, again, thanks for asking uh, for allowing me to, to talk a bit about the, the method and how it came up. So. Um, the idea for the book came into being, as many ideas come into being, over a dinner <laughs> in Mumbai uh, with an anthropologist friend, Mora um, Finkelstein. And this was sometime in the winter of 2017. We were both in Bombay and, and uh, at some point our conversation turned, as conversations often turn um, among uh, anthropologists of Mumbai, two stories of the creative genius of our research participants so you know after you know after uh, um, sitting down to dinner that, and sort of getting over the formalities of of what we 're doing, then we start telling funny stories, so I had been telling a story about a so-called plumber named Sunny. So you asked, you know, when I started thinking about the broker or practices of mediation, it was from my very first book, Pipe Politics. There's one of the chapters is on, um, is on knowledge brokering. Uh, and so the, and these people, plumber, called plumbers, they're, they're referred to as plumbers. They don't actually do any plumbing. They do all sorts of things. Um, sometimes they employ plumbers, but they do not plumb themselves. Uh, and I've, I've written also about, about Sunny elsewhere in a piece in a special issue about engineering um, that came out a few years ago in niger but anyway i've been telling this story about plum uh, about sunny and sunny's special expertise skill or skill uh, was in procuring official water connections for households that didn't have proof of residence documents this was his specialization um, and so uh, my dinner companion responded with her own story, who was about, it was about a fellow whose sort of beso- behind-the-scenes work was also a bit like Sonny's, um, both absolutely necessary and crucial to the practices and the worlds that she was researching, um, but also not very well understood and even misunderstood, perhaps. So I got to thinking what if I were to convince as many Bombay ethnographers as I possibly could to write up a profile of some such person? Um, The person who's not maybe the main protagonist of... uh, our research in Bombay. So not the official water engineer or the film director or the elected counselor or, you know, the, the building contractor, not that person, but rather that other person, right? The one who, um, even if we can't always make out quite what it is they do for a living, nonetheless, uh, appears to be absolutely necessary to whatever it is that we are trying to make sense of what our research is trying to figure out. So, you know, how movies get made, how taps get pressurized. All we know is, unless this person, and shows up and does whatever they do you know water doesn't come movies don't get made so the question is like, what does that person actually do like they wake up and what happens <laughs> so after mulling over this idea for a few months um I sent her on a series of emails to everyone I could think of who had an active project in Mumbai. And then I also asked everyone for suggestions of other people we might rope in. And I explained the idea and invited, um, invited them to write up an ethnographic profile of some such person. And I should say that I probably sent out in total 70 emails and we have 36 contributions which is you know more than half but i will say that of the people who didn't participate there wasn't a single person who said that they they didn't participate because they didn't have anyone to write about. In fact, the question, it really fertile terrain. I mean, everybody had, it, the problem wasn't who to write about. It was which person to write about. Right. Cause <laughs> and, uh, um, although a lot of people knew exactly who they wanted to write about, but, you know, as we all are under pressure from a million different directions that it simply wasn't possible for everyone who wanted to participate to participate. And I tell this story just to say that, um, Every every person I spoke to um, could think of at least one person who fit this description. <laughs> so, so. I asked everyone when they were writing up their piece, and I asked everyone for you know a three to four thousand word piece, and I asked them to address four questions in the piece. So the first question has to do with the actual activities that come to be described in Mumbai in this kind of neither here nor there language of you know brokerage or dalali as you know as it's called in Bombay sometimes. Um, So what does this work actually entail? What are these activities trying to achieve and to what end? You know, what are the stakes of these activities? Uh, And then the second thing I asked about uh, was the knowledge and resources that made it possible for some work to be done. So what is required for this work to be done? How are these skills or resources acquired? um so uh, alongside the ethnographic account of this person in action each profile pays attention as well to how the profiled person narrates their own personal history and how they talk about the process through which they acquired their expertise and whatever resources that allow them to do whatever it is they do. Um, So there's a kind of autobiographical piece as well. Then the third thing I asked uh, everyone to address has to do, and this is really important, has to do with the moralizing talk that gathers around these people and their work. And this was the kind of diagnostic piece. like How do we know which person to pick? These are people who, you know, besides them being the person who's not the main character, but they have some important work that doesn't have a clear job description. Um, but these are also people who come to be uh, often either vilified or valorized or both by people around them, right? And this is the case even though in their actual practices, they're neither clear heroes nor clear villains, and yet they tend to be kind of, you know, vilified or valorized. So this is really interesting. So we asked ourselves when we were writing, in what context and in whose company is some person or practice being described using unflattering words like nuisance or troublemaker or thief or, you know, again, the Lal, which, you know, also means pimp. Like it's a very not flattering word. And in what context or company might that same person and their same work be characterized using, you know, more friendly laudatory terms like, you know, social worker or friend or brother, partner. So what we found is that you know, people were very rarely neutral when they talked about the activities that these people uh, were doing. And then lastly, uh, bringing these questions together, I asked each author to talk about or to pay attention to the historical specificity of the activities and skills that our um, characters were performing. So we asked, what makes these particular skills so valuable and so necessary now at this particular historical juncture in in this particular place in Mumbai. Um, And, yeah, in fact, so valuable that that these uh, practices can often command their own price. So the idea, our kind of broader methodological idea, was that if we can focus our collective ethnographic attention just for a moment Um, on the actual practices of these activities, right, to look at the city from our kind of collective peripheral vision, even for just a moment, then this might allow us to shift our attention away from uh, some of the kind of received concepts and categories uh, through which urban life is sometimes studied and narrated, you know, formal, informal, legal, illegal, um, And again, that would allow us to shift our attention away from this question of whether brokers and brokerage are a good or a bad thing, right? Are they kind of, uh, you know, the cause of state failure or are they kind of enabling state failure to exist, that kind of thing? And rather, it allowed us to learn something new. So not broker good, broker bad, but broker what? Um, And again, so uh, scholarship on brokerage, and I I kind of dive into this at some length into the book's introduction, tends to come uh, with a kind of set of preloaded normative ideas about institutions and failures, again, like state failure or market inefficiency, right? Like the, the literature is full of ideas about the relationship between economic brokerage and market inefficiency or institutional failure. Um, And it's these institutional failures that are generally theorized to create the gaps that then produces the need for brokerage. Sometimes, though, the brokers are accused of actually creating the institutional failures. Um, So rather than ask about, you know, institutions and their failures and then, you know, which presumes what the gap is, we, we sort of invert the question methodologically, and that's our methodological innovation, um, which is to actually look from the, the practice itself. Um, so why are these activities so necessary at this moment? Um, but before we move on, Sneha, would, I, would you allow me just a minute to maybe say a word about what we actually mean with the word brokerage if we're using it in this different way, or have I droned on to- Okay. Okay. I, I think. I think it's. It maybe it's helpful um, because sometimes people have asked me. Okay. Why brokerage? Um, like why do we use this word? Because it does come. It's so loaded a term, and it comes with all of this sort of scholarly and normative baggage. And you know, the answer I always gave was like, look, if we don't call these people brokers, then other people will say, oh, this is the book about brokers because, <laughs> right? So- Either like We need to kind of reappropriate this term and then actually give it useful analytical content. So that's what we've done. We've, we've used, we're trying to use the B word um, in order to uh, allow us to, to actually do something constructive with it. So our methodological innovation, which is, again, to start with material practices rather than from these kinds of normative presumptions about institutions and their failures and so on. Um, this we end up with a really different conceptualization of brokerage. And I outline this too in, in the book's introduction. So what we do uh, is our conceptualization, we take a cue from um, STS, science and technology scholar, Michel Callon. Um, and Calon is borrowing uh, Goffman's idea of framing, um, which uh, many of your readers I'm sure are familiar with, but just quickly, so... Um, Calon is using this idea of framing to point out that any sort of coordinated social action necessarily presumes some kinds of rules of the game, right? So, for instance, before two people sit down and play chess, they first have to agree to, you know, what are the rules of chess insofar as, you know, the game is rec- recognizable as chess, um, Although I remember being a kid and being really annoyed when my cousin David kept trying to make one of the pawns ride the horse. (laughs) This isn't chess, but exactly, right? So there have to be, if it's going to be chess, it has to have. So Callon's point uh, is that in the broader world, unlike in chess... Framing is always and necessarily incomplete, right? Because the actual world always overflows uh, these rules, right? It overflows any effort to cordon off or frame in Goffman's terms any social situation. A social situation like, say, you know, a land transfer or a film shoot or you know a claim to community belonging, right? There might be an effort to say, you know, these are the boundaries of the contract or these are the boundaries of the community. But in reality, relationships, and, you know, also because the world is materialized, will always overflow these frames. And this is, of course, because the myriad bits and parts of the would-be cordoned off world are always bound up with so many other worlds and relationships, right? So, like, a land transfer contract is, like, those bits and pieces of land are always bound up with, you know, say, groundwater aquifers, which, like, might not map onto the boundaries, for instance. So, um, It's kind of like how economists describe market externalities, right? This is an example that a lot of people are probably familiar with. So, for instance, when toxic waste is discharged by some uh, manufacturer into a local river and then this affects the health of local residents, then those health costs, which aren't factored into the price of the industrial good, this would be considered by economists as a market externality, Right, and and these sorts of unwieldy material externalities are unavoidable, and, and in fact they're the very reason that market situations demand framing in the first place. In order for a kind of market transaction to happen, there has to be a kind of bounding of of you know the market situation. So similarly, in our project. Um, we focus ethnographic attention on the materials and ideas and practices that overflow these official frames right official rules policy frameworks you know borders boundaries and we focus particularly on the people who make it their business often quite literally make it their business to manage and mediate these unruly sorts of material and ideational overflows so it's these practices of managing the overflow that we are referring to as brokerage and the people who do that um management as brokers so i'll stop there and thanks for letting me uh, take a minute to explain explain that
1: yeah no i think that's really helpful also to anchor the the conversation around the contents of the book so quickly for those of you who haven't had the chance to read this book the book is divided into six parts Each is concerned with the thematic domain. Uh, There's development, there's property, there's business, difference, publics, and truth. Each part is introduced uh, with a short essay that weaves together the analytical strands of the character profiles that follow. While we can't, unfortunately, get into each character profile in the book, although they're all so interesting, um, I, I was going to ask you, Lisa, a few questions about each theme. Um, So in a counterintuitive way, let's actually begin with the final part, which is part six, uh, which is such a deeply fascinating section. Um, So the idea there is that brokerage is an activity that mediates claims to truth, um, in in double quotes, um, and is both so intuitive, but also deeply under-theorized. We encounter situations uh, in these character profiles in which brokers do the work of investigation, verification, authentication in contexts where truth claims are multiple and often conflicting. Um, could you just give us a few examples here so that we can really see the implications of thinking about brokerage and truth claims in the context of um, contemporary Mumbai? Mm.
0: Yeah, thank you. I, I'd love to to dive into some of the, the ethnography. And it's interesting um, that uh, you asked me to talk about the last chapter first, because um, originally, the truth chapter was the first chapter, um, and that's uh, the reason for that was because the um, this issue of sort of mediating truth um, is a theme that runs through many of the the profiles. So there was a way in which kind of putting it up front was, you know, it. I, I think it ended up working nicely to put it at the end, but I think it makes a lot of sense um, now to to. To take some of those examples, because it also allows me to flesh out examples from, um, from the other chapters as well. So yeah, as you mentioned, the last chapter uh, is about people who make it their business to produce and sort through and um, adjudicate, really, irreconcilable truth claims. Um, so for example, we can, uh, I'll take for, for a, a sort of deep dive example, um, Atre sends. Uh, piece about a so-called prison surrogate named Pawan. And so Pawan's uh, work, uh, he makes a living serving jail time in the name of politically connected and better off Mumbikers, Uh people who've been convicted of some or another crime, rape or murder or theft, as Sen writes, not uncommon. But these are people who are able and willing to pay in cash to escape having to go to prison. So Sen's Profile of Pawan looks at uh, or allows us to see the different audiences for different versions of truth. So what we can see is how Pawan's expertise as a prison master makes it possible for these sort of multiple and conflicting and irreconcilable truth claims to actually coexist, right? Because they're both there, they both need to exist. So, okay, hang on, let me read an excerpt from that profile. All right. Once in the big city, Pawan realized that finding work was not easy. His first experience being locked up in a neighborhood police station came after he tried to steal a radio from a local shop. In the police station, Pawan entertained everyone with his songs and his dancing. He was so good at gyrating to Bollywood music that the police constable eventually passed him a long strip of cloth through the prison bars. Pawan wrapped the cloth around his waist and danced like Madhuri Dixit and did some exciting twirling which made both the prisoners and the policemen applaud with laughter. Two days later, Pawan was released for being a fun chap, and while saluting goodbye to the inhabitants of this small prison police world, he realized that it was also his first experience of musty or fun, in Mumbai. Pawan was arrested again several times, sometimes for grievous offenses such as aggravated assault and sometimes for intoxicated misdemeanors in public places. In every prison that Pawan encountered, music went with him. He would sing and crack jokes and kept the prisoners, his cellmates, the jailer, and the wardens all entertained. It wasn't perfect, mind you, he said. He didn't like the fact that he had to sleep on urine after prisoners pissed on the floor when the wardens refused to let them out at night. He did catch some deadly infections and his body was covered with insect bites and pieces of shit would pop up in the milk because the wardens stole the pure milk and topped up the cans with water from the toilet. But Pawan learned over time to churn the milk to see if the shit floated to the top, see if it remained at the bottom of the cans, the milk would be infected enough to lead to an outbreak of diarrhea. If it floated to the top, Pawan and the other prisoners would quickly scoop it out to limit the spread of disease. He also learned how to seal open wounds with white candle wax and alcohol sneaked into prison by jailers. Sometimes the prisoners would break into fights and the guards would give the inmates a thrashing. Through music, dances, mimicry and jokes and keeping the wardens in good humor, sometimes by singing, sometimes by giving the jailers a good back massage, sometimes by mediating between an aggravated prison population and the wardens, Pawan, managed to gain enough knowledge about the moods and the maps of prison management to keep both the prisoners and the wardens in his pocket. A lot of people were huddled together in this enclosed and deadly space, so Pawan could study people quickly. He knew exactly what song to sing and what joke to crack to cheer up, manipulate, and get information from the people around him. One morning, out of prison, as Pawan lay in his shanty smoking a joint, One of his mates told him that the local party leader, a man named Anant, had asked Pawan to visit him in the shaka, the local party office. Pawan was confused at first. He was aware of local party politics, but he didn't understand most of it. When Pawan walked into Anant's office, Anant looked up at his visitor and he said, welcome. Welcome, prison master. The party leader asked Pawan whether he would be willing to be a prison surrogate. So that's the end of the quote. So What becomes clear in this profile um, also is that being a surrogate doesn't really sit well with Pawan all the time, and that he actually kind of resents the rich kids who get to rape and murder, but then don't have to go to prison. Um, But it's his poverty that compels Pawan to set aside these kinds of moral commitments, I think, to equality before the law. And, And ultimately, he uses his own body to metabolize these sorts of contradictions, But what we see is that um, these kinds of moral commitments that Pawan expresses, he doesn't express them in relation to his own surrogacy work, Um, but he talks about these kinds of moral ambivalences toward his surrogacy work when he's talking about the younger generation of surrogates that he trains to take his place. And of course, this becomes necessary once Pawan gets too old to credibly pass as a 20 year old. Um, so Sen writes about Pawan's reluctance in sending, uh, you, you know, younger, younger, as she puts it, you know, she puts younger and more vulnerable boys often arriving fresh from the village, that uh, he has some reluctance about sending these boys into a life that they are, uh, you know, poor enough to embrace. So it's this kind of, it's in this context of moral ambivalence that, um when one of Poan's trainees actually is sexually assaulted in prison, Poan is furious. So Poan he marches straight down to the prison guards to, you know, to give them a piece of his mind. And he's furious, you see, because uh, as Poan says to the guards, it's the surrogate who makes it possible for these incompatible truths to coexist. So these two truths being, you know, on the one hand, the kind of equal before the law proceduralism, Uh, And then on the other hand, the equally real political power and inequality that allows some people to sidestep that very same formal legal equality. So there are these two truths that, you know, need to both exist. Um, So it's the surrogate who metabolizes these contradictions with his body. It's the surrogate's stomach that digests the shit-contaminated milk, and it's you know it's Pawan's skills in surviving prison life, um, and again these are skills that are born largely from poverty and economic compulsion. This is what keeps the prison guards safe from the dangers of these contradictory truths. Uh, of political power and official procedures, because as Sen explains, you know, if some kind of a, a surprise official prison check were to were to turn up that a convicted person weren't actually present in the jail, it it wouldn't be the political higher ups who had uh, you know arranged for the surrogate and the release from prison of the politically connected people who would be held accountable. No, it would be the lower level prison guards. And the prison officers, the people who simply carry out the release orders, they're the ones who would be vulnerable to allegations of corruption. So it's in this context that Pawan is so furious at the guards for failing to protect his young trainees from this violence because it's the guards themselves that are ultimately the ones who are protected by the prison surrogates services. Um, But in this sort of, you know, incredibly poignant exchange at the end of the profile, the guards don't apologize for failing to protect the two uh, young surrogates. And even more poignantly, perhaps the two young surrogates don't leave the profession. They just figure out somehow how to navigate um, prison life a bit better. Um, That was quite long, but I could mention one or two others from the truth chapter uh, so we can see how this plays out in different contexts if we have time, or should we move on to the next question? Okay, sure, sure. Okay, so also in the truth chapter um well there's there's two really breathtaking portraits actually of the role that truth makers play in producing the built fabric of the city and thanks for for letting me talk about um about another another profile because i think it's really interesting to see how this kind of truth mediation plays out in really really different contexts so um You know, these are this sort of truth mediation plays a big role in the kind of development projects and property regimes that are the focus of some of the other chapters. The profiles authored by um, Amitabh read together with um, the one by the jointly authored by Prasad Shetty and um, Rupali Gupta, they show how. these sort of truth mediations have really open-ended kind of possibilities. They kind of, you know, it's not decided beforehand, um, you know, how things are going to go. It's not that these sort of mediators always come down on the side of, you know, power or resistance. That's not the story here. It's really this kind of open-endedness that comes through um, in the context of Mumbai's sort of myriad and, and extremely high-stakes urban and redevelopment uh projects urban development and redevelopment projects we can see that um the way in which truth and knowledge is mediated is hugely um or sort of wide open so see because and this is the case because urban development projects generally require the existence or the production of official data, often survey data and other kinds of official reports. So uh, Shetty and Gupta's profile is about um, a small time stationer named Chadda. Um, and uh, Chadda becomes, in their words, an overnight star in the world of infrastructure consultancy in the years after the 2005 flooding of the Miti River. And this is the case because Chadda's stationery shop happened to be situated nearby the Mumbai Metropolitan Regional Development Authority, or the MMRDA offices. And what this meant was that over the many years running the stationery shop, Chadda had developed a really strong network of contacts with various government officers working at the MMRDA. So after the floods, this network of contacts landed him a report-making gig with the Development Authority. uh, and and the, the report making was to explain the reasons for the flooding. So what Chadha quickly figured out after he took this gig on was that the NMRDA didn't really need a document that explained the reason for the flooding, which was the official uh, assignment. What they really needed was a report that would prove one particular theory, which had already been decided in advance of any est- investigation. So the gig was really just to pr- you know, produce a report and produce the data that would demonstrate this decided um, argument. So Chudda realized he just needed to prove in this report that the Miti River had flooded because of the so-called illegitimate structures, um, which just means, you know, the homes of the urban poor, that were situated along the banks of the river and then once you know once chad understands the the so-called truth that his report making was supposed to uncover he went ahead and put together a team of surveyors to make the drawings and then calculate the number of these so-called encroachments um, and then he made this report which was a wild success um, and then after this first assignment was so successful, Chadda was regularly recruited by the state authorities as a sort of survey-making subcontractor by the uh, Regional Development Authority. So what we see is how bureaucratic expedience, um, it, or we see, in fact, that it, that it is uh, the imperative of expedience, which... Decides the content of the so-called truth that surveys and other forms of so-called primary data collection um, claim to be discovering through investigation, which is to say, uh, you know, just like the surrogate body of Powan our prison master, um, Chuda's reports are instantiating a version of reality which allows state authorities to act. To act upon predecided projects and goals, all the while safely ignoring less convenient truths, of course, that don't fit into these official, um, institutionalized uh, rights and rules and, and narratives. So. Um, I'll just add that Chetty's profile is particularly powerful given the author's direct experience with these kinds of dynamics in Bombay because Shetty himself is a former state planner um, who worked for many years with the MMRDA. But, but just really quickly, I want to mention... Um, very, very briefly, uh, another piece in this truth chapter. And this is important because this other chapter by Amitabhita shows how the existence of these multiple truths, um, can yield other kinds of possibilities as well. Um, this kind of data production. So Amitabhita uh, profiles a self-proclaimed knowledge entrepreneur named Prakash. And um, like Chadda, Prakash is also in the business of report making and knowledge production, but he's doing it as a sub subcontractor, meaning he's hired by people like Chadda, hired by consultants to carry out the actual work of door-to-door surveying and mapping. So, While Chadda's profile suggests some kind of like a watertight top-down regime um, of, you know, kind of truth and power, uh, what we see um, is that Uh, people who have the skills and social networks to navigate the the difficult environments of Mumbai's so-called slums are able to advance and empower their own versions of reality. So Prakash grew up in a Mumbai neighborhood, which is treated for policy purposes as a slum. And this is the reason why he knows all too well the realities um, of everyday life and how those realities exceed these kinds of tidy categories of governmental reports. So what he does is he draws on his own personal experience to produce uh, survey data uh, and put it to work toward very, very different goals than those of, say, you know, Chadda's patrons in the government offices. Um, and this is because he knows that uh, the kind of material realities don't fit neatly into these these sort of official categories. So Prakash, um, rather than cut out those kind of messy details or messy realities and shove them into official categories, Prakash uses his position to shine light on those same details and thereby to empower them. Right. So by rendering the messiness visible through his own work of surveying and mapping, Prakash ultimately challenges and refigures those uh, institutionalized categories and policy frameworks to reshape them in ways that he deems to be more important inclusive, and fair. So the profile uh, lays out how Prakash draws on a little bit of information that he had gleaned from one of his earlier government survey gigs. Um, to later on convince state authorities to grant slum redevelopment allotment housing to uh, a group of displaced people who had earlier been declared ineligible because their claims were kind of illegible to these official policy frameworks. And he was able to do this because he was able to show his own survey data and to make a really creative and ultimately convincing argument for why these people could be included as project affected persons in conjunction with an upcoming infrastructure project on the site of their former neighborhood, right? So this was like a situation that didn't fit into any policy framework or category, but because he knew the neighborhood and had was able to shine light on these sort of messy details, he was able to empower them and actually you know put put sort of uh, power behind the knowledge and and get um, allotment houses for these people who were displaced, so all of which is to say it's not decided beforehand how these kinds of irreconcilable uh, truth mediations will will land up and that's and that's what's so interesting about thinking from this space is that it allows us to move past these kinds of good, bad power resistance um, and actually ask about. The, the ways in which um, the kind of openness and open-endedness is put to work toward all kinds of different projects and ideas and ideas about the future.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I guess sticking to the theme of development, um, I want to talk about the essays that comprise part one. And in part one, we encounter brokers uh, in the context of development and redevelopment in Mumbai, and we see the labor of mediating the contradictions of urban development laws and policies in action, right? And, uh, well, in other words, we see how development is materialized via brokers. So what does viewing development through the lens of labor of brokerage tell us? You've already spoken at length about the truth claims part of it, but are there any, I guess, other angles to the story about brokers and their relationship to the to the, I guess, the moving target of development in Bombay. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so we talked a bit already about, uh, you know, in the profiles of chadda and Prakash, um, but. You know, development, like truth, and really like all of the, the chapter themes, property, value, and so on, um, development is in scare quotes. And the reason it's in scare quotes is that it refers to this sort of empowered idiom of developmentalism, which animates the kind of real estate and construction industries and and urban planning imaginaries, um, and international NGOs and funding institutions. So this idea of development um, is sort of the domain of media. Mediation here. Uh, and especially organizations having programs oriented toward improving the built environment for so called slum neighborhoods, right? Um, areas that are home to the urban poor. So I guess just I'll back up for a moment and talk about the context that comes into view by looking at these development brokers. So the context, of course, is the sort of dramatic liberalization era policy shifts beginning from the 1990s and the the kind of um, way in which Mumbai... Uh, planners and policymakers and sort of, you know, real estate uh, developers and business elites became fixated on this idea of turning Mumbai into a world-class city. There was this idea, ideal, of sort of turning Mumbai into, you know, Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai. There was, you know, sort of changing um, changing role model city. And there was a, a real... Um, i mean i guess i'll use the word optimism uh because it was a, it, it came across as an optimism among sort of urban elites and multinational business and finance industries and things that that you know bombay was going to become this space of uh luxury housing and consumption and uh, urban beautification and this was going to involve um slum removal and the clearing of uh, non-elite sorts of lives and livelihoods right clearing of uh, hawkers off of footpaths and different kinds of um you know industrial activities that were deemed to be inappropriate or polluting or not, uh, you know, not appropriate to a kind of world-class city. So it's in this context of kind of dramatic liberalization era, policy shifts and the attendant kind of uh, activation of policy, urban policy and development regimes that would change, would sought to change and, you know, quote, clean up the built fabric of the city. Um, We see how the people profiled in this development chapter were enlisted uh, in materializing the city's built environment. So they do the work of actually physically bringing the fabric of the city into being, and they do this by managing and mediating and you know metabolizing. I like that word metabolizing when I think about these people because their expertise is so embodied. I mean, with Pawan, it's so obvious that the, the metabolic components of it, but there's this way in which the contradictions produced by myriad developmental rules and policies, which, you know, don't even all add up in the same direction um, and are constantly changing, moreover, there all of these contradictions put to work or sort of uh, that are set in motion by the opera- operationalization of these development rules and regimes um, in conflict with each other and then the sort of unwieldy materiality of the city itself. Right. And so this is what I talked about earlier with, uh, my earlier book, uh, pipe politics, the kind of above and below ground, the, the temporal disjunctures, and, um, th- and the kind of, uh, strange contradictions that that yielded. And that's where that chapter in, in my book, pipe politics, uh, you know, about brokers, um, really in some ways set this thinking into motion. Um, So we see in this chapter a bunch of different forms of expertise that are mediating these contradictions between this kind of like variegated uh, bunch of policy rules and regimes and and imperatives and the kind of actual institutionalized and materialized city. So, you know, just to give a a tiny example, we have... um, Tobias Bech's profile of Imran, who's a self-described contractor uh, in low-income neighborhoods, often treated for policy purposes as slums. So this profile of Imran highlights the kind of um, really diverse kinds of resources and forms of expertise that are brought to bear in enabling small-scale construction and remodeling and vertical expansion in this um, so-called slum neighborhood of Shivajinagar, Nagar. And this is a a really interesting space because it's a a kind of middle-class neighborhood, um, a kind of lower middle-class neighborhood, which is treated um, under this policy framework as a slum, which really makes it very difficult legally to do any kinds of renovations or improvements on houses, which is a problem, right? Because this is a a neighborhood which is home to people who are interested in investing in their homes. So these are, you know, two and three story homes. Um, and so how are people supposed to invest in their homes when the area is treated as, you know, non-developable because it's sort of criminalized, so um you know even though the area has never officially been classified as a slum under the provisions of the the sort of slum areas act; it's treated as a slum for policy purposes, which means that you know, anytime anybody starts to do any kind of construction work, then the demolition crews are going to show up with allegations of you know, this is illegal construction. So what we see in this profile of Imran, which is just amazing, is this um, phenomenon called the symbolic wall. And what this is is the contractor Imran, in this case, he has really good relationships not only with all of the people that are necessary to get buildings built. So you've got to be able to, you know, get water, which is not easy, I can tell you. Um, Get sand, get concrete, get labor. You've got to assemble all of these things. But not only that, you've got to be able to have um, good relations with the municipal offices who are under um, sort of, you know, who are required to come and act on these so-called illegal constructions. So what, uh, you know, what Imran does is he constructs a symbolic wall, it's like a little low lying wall. And then he tells the municipal authorities, look, you know, I'm we're starting construction, they build the wall, then the authorities come, they knock down the wall, everybody takes pictures, right. So the BMC, the municipal officers have done their duty. You know, demolishing the illegal construction, and then now that everybody has documentation, they can get back to work and they can finish the redevelopment. And everybody—it's a little bit like the surrogate, right? Like everybody is covered. Um, these these truths, both that there is illegal construction, and yet, in fact, uh, you know, the construction will happen for you know, not least because it's not really illegal. Uh, so this kind of um, expertise allows these to coexist. Uh, and then my own piece, which is about a engineer named Dalpat, um, his expertise is in his ability to secure permissions, official uh, government posi- uh, permissions, um, in contexts where given these kinds of material and institutional contradictions governing Bombay's built environment, where giving permissions are, uh, as Dalpat puts it, are impossible to give. So he, um, his expertise is in securing impossible permissions. Uh, and he is able to do this because of the reservoirs of mutual trust born of his personal family and professional life history. Um, then we have uh, Uday Chandra has written a portrait of uh, Janu, a labor contractor who brings um, migrant laborers, construction laborers from the village, seasonal labor from the village and sort of um, enables, mediates their, their contracts and um, helps them to adjust to life in Mumbai, that sort of thing. And then a uh, Lorena Searle has written a portrait of a Delhi-born real estate investor named Koshal who is based between New York and Florida and Sao Paulo. And his expertise is in land agglomeration. So sort of transforming bits and parts, uh, parts of uh, of land uh, with kind of illegible property title into single investable parcels of land that are legible to foreign investors. So that's just a kind of snippet of the sorts of um, development brokers that that we see.
1: Yeah and I, I wish we had time to get into the property brokers but even that chapter is really really interesting and I think dovetails very with the with the development brokers but After that comes part three, which I really enjoyed, because it was very, I think, illuminating for bringing up the angle of value creation in the city. And in part three, there are several vignettes and biographies of brokers um, whose uh, work, whose different kinds of labor accrues different kinds of values. So I was curious to hear you speak a bit about why thinking about value creation by brokerage matters at all to thinking about Mumbai. Yeah, again back to methodology. So it wasn't the
0: case that I decided that value creation was a useful way to think about the city. It was it was more that, you know, when I was sort of presented with a pile of profiles, it became immediately apparent that mediating uh, among these sort of competing value projects was a crucial form of urban expertise in the contemporary city. Um so while there actually, of course, there's a separate chapter about people who are experts in mediating value, actually in the book's introduction, um, I explain that this theme of value is one that runs through the whole book, and I, and I um, talk at some length about it. So in the introduction, when I introduce this theme of, of mediating value, uh, I talk about my encounter with this man named Pankaj. Uh, whose company specializes in what he calls non-brokering. And so I found this term non-brokering so striking. And, and so I spoke at some length with Punkage to ask about Non-brokering, you know, what's so bad about brokering that he would actually brand his company, uh, which incidentally has some very powerful clients, including the regional development authority and government offices and international banks and so on. So why uh, you know, is brokering so bad that he would actually brand his company in opposition to the idea of brokering? And what I learned is that Pankaj's suspicion of brokering is not about the money price of the brokerage services per se. So this wasn't a story about so-called rent seeking, which is often, um, you know, what the broker is accused of, particularly sort of, you know, financial brokerage or economic brokerage. Rather, um, what Punkage explained to me that... um, there was this idea that some activities distort or misrepresent what he calls true value. So the problem of brokerage is that it misrepresents true value. There's this idea of true value. So all of this moral hand-wringing about the activities that were termed brokerage relate to how different kinds of labor are valued, which is to say you know, the relationship between the presumed value or lack of value of some practice and the ticket price of the services <laughs> that were um On offer, and you know the way in which like are these things really valuable, do they contribute to the true value of something, or do they actually you know take away or distort that true value? so this has to do with the the value of the labor um, of brokerage versus non brokerage so to answer your question about what might be learned from attending to value, I think what we learned is that paying attention to this moralizing talk about whether some work either adds or eats value, right? Whether um, to use punkage's terms, whether some work is brokerage or non-brokerage, uh, although he's the only person I've heard use that term, but I love it. Um, this lets us see and maybe say something new about contemporary regimes of value uh, and the production of value. So it, what it lets us explore, um, what about these normative principles of value are new or what is particular to the current historical moment. So there's something about paying attention to value that struck me as um, you know, as giving us insight in, into the present, into the, the contemporary historical moment. So just to kind of talk about this a bit more, Um, I want to give an example of, uh, and and to take back to um, the the Hindi, Urdu, Marathi word dalal, um, which is a word whose moral valence has actually undergone a dramatic shift uh, since the 19th century. Mm, So today in Bombay, the word Dalal and Dalali in general are are generally used in disparaging terms to mean something like pimp or the act of pimping, either literally or more often figuratively. Um, But see, the term Dalal did not always have this kind of pejorative connotation that it does in Bombay. Historically, Dalal was, and of course still is, uh, a Western Indian surname along the lines of you know, say Shroff, which is a money changer or Dubash, a translator. Uh, it simply refers to an occupation. Um, so You know, I I write about this in the book's introduction, how uh, one 19th century dictionary defines Dalal as simply, what is it, Um, an auctioneer, a broker, or a road guide. I like this road guide. So the shift, I became really interested in the shift of the moral valence of the word Dalal. And and again, I, I sort of think about this in the introduction. Um, And what I learned is that the moral valence shifted, and uh, we can trace this shift to the, at least in part, to the institutional changes of the 19th century and and the project of colonial state-making. So, I, in the book's introduction, I draw on the work of some Indian Ocean historians to talk about how understandings of trade shifted in the 19th century period. So they shifted from um, what were, at one point, transactions between individuals or firms to transactions between states. And what this meant, in practical purposes, for practical purposes, was that moving goods in and out of a port city like Bombay, for instance, um increasingly meant navigating really complex procedures of moving goods through customs. So... uh... One Indian Ocean historian, Johan Matthew, uh, has written about how in this context, um, firms began hiring clearing agencies, or sorry, clearing agents. uh, That is hiring people who were already experts in all of the things, all of the skills that were needed uh, in the customs offices, right? Because suddenly we had customs offices, right? Um, So these were skills like commensuration and valuation among a variety of different goods that were valued in many, many different currencies. So customs agents themselves were generally recruited from communities of the Laos and Mukadams, who were village chiefs or revenue officers. Um, and they were recruited from these communities for the obvious reason that they already had this practical expertise in how trade actually works, right? How to do commensuration and valuation among all of these different kinds of goods in these, all these different currencies. Um, so the expertise of the dalals and the mukaddams existed prior to the institutional shifts that made their expertise so necessary in these official customs offices and procedures but then at the same time the location of these dalals and mukaddams inside the customs offices Put these exchange agents and commodity brokers in a position, of course, to exercise their personal judgment in the valuing of goods, right? According to their skills, their familiarity with these long established trade practices, which, you know, of course, was the reason that they had landed inside the customs offices in the first place. But it was this new location mediating the contradictions between these sort of new official procedures and the institution of the customs office and the actual trade practice, right? People are still using a myriad currencies and valuing in all of these different ways. It was this kind of Janus-faced location that meant that the LALs and their valuations were constantly under suspicion, especially by colonial administrators who always suspected them, you know, needed them to do this valuation work, but also who always, always suspected them of being loyal to their, you know, their trade networks, um, but see at the same time the the new location of these uh, agents inside the customs offices put them, um, put these agents and the commodity brokers in a position to exercise their personal judgment in valuing goods in accordance with their established familiarity with with long-standing trade practices um and so there was a sort of a constant suspicion particularly from colonial administrators that these dalals and muqaddams would be loyal not to the sort of official customs procedures but rather to their long-standing networks of you know trading partners um so this is, uh, of course, it was their long-standing relations with these firms that had landed the brokers inside the customs offices in the first place. But um, this very same familiarity always meant that Dalal's and their valuations were under suspicion by the colonial administrators. So... Um, anyway all of which is to say that the spatial concentration of these kinds of experts and practices in 19th century bombay which was again a moment uh, which um, in which bombay was sort of again flush with different kinds of mediators such as these mukaddams and dalals and dubashes and shroffs and things money changers and translators um, that spatial uh, concentration reflected the city's location uh, at the intersection of these sort of seismic global processes and shifts of that particular historical moment in the 19th century. So very similarly, our book project, Bombay Brokers, is interested in the array of activities populating this historical moment um, in the practices that overflow the normative categories uh, and empowered frames of value today. So, you know, things that that were valuable at one point might be suspicious at another point, just like how, you know, Dalals the and their valuations underwent this kind of um. Uh, increasing suspicion during the the period that I've outlined. So again, I think that what's interesting is that attending to um, what kinds of value are or what kinds of labor are are considered valuable, and which ones are considered to be kind of suspicious or eating out of the value chain allows us to understand something about um, institutional shifts and shifts in scale and bounding and uh, um, yeah, of of this particular historical moment.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. That was uh, really, really interesting to to listen to you explicate those connections. Again, even though I've uh, read the book, but it was really nice to hear the the story about how it all came together. Um, But the vivid profiles in part four tell us the story of how brokers navigate the politics of location and representation, that is communal, caste-based, linguistic, sexual and gendered. And the broker in this section is so clearly shaped by and shapes the fractured terrain of collective belonging in Mumbai. Um, Could you give us a brief intro to the kinds of brokerage work involved with the enactment of identity, representation and difference? And I think it's so particularly um, compelling to take the focus away from the economic sphere, so to speak, uh, so yeah, I was just curious to know more about the kinds of brokerage work involved in identity representation and difference work.
0: Mm. Um, yeah, thanks, thanks for for inviting me to talk about uh, this chapter. I mean, mm-hmm. I, they're all wonderful, but this one is, um, in some ways, you know, maybe the most kind of uh, traditional. In the sort of anthropological uh, orientation these questions of identity but in some ways you're right that it's not um, a domain that maybe comes to mind when people use the word brokerage it's mm-hmm. it's more often the of political brokerage or the state or the economy so yeah. um yeah that's that's a, a great point um So yeah, the the chapter about difference is about, um, and I think uh, Anjali Arundhika puts it in her introduction really beautifully. It's about what she calls the management of the politics of location and representation, location and representation. Um, So hang on, I'll just read a sentence from how Anjali characterizes the expertise that animates this chapter. Okay, she writes that uh, the stories in this chapter are about, quote, how structures of differentiation accrue and or seed value within the broader networks of a city where lives are constantly being made and undone by the machinations of power and location. Um, What these stories make abundantly clear is that the idea of difference has always been a highly fraught site of constant contestation and emergence. The stories unmoor us from settled understandings of how identifications and representations of difference and belonging operate within a city like Bombay. Um, End quote. So this is such a, I think, a powerful chapter um, given um, you know, what sometimes seems to be a deepening communalization uh, of the city, although sometimes it seems to be tacking in the opposite direction depends on mm-hmm. who you ask and where you look, but um, definitely there there's a lot of uh, what might what one might call identity politics in, right. in the city, um, and what these, which is to say, uh, this idea that um, identity categories are maybe, you know, pre-political or that they're sort of self-evident or um, are uh, easily sort of amenable to, you know, representation uh, without having to sort of take into account the sort of infrastructures of representation, as it were, or sort of how different um, collectivities or ideas of community are sort of brought into being or reshaped or contested. So, yeah, this what we see in this chapter uh, is just how just the articulation of identity and of, you know, difference is constantly being made and contested and remade. And, um, you know, how is belonging uh, sort of navigated? So to give maybe just one really quick um, example, and I'm attentive to the time here, uh, David Stroll has profiled Sultan. um, And Sultan's job is to manage the public image of his uh, Muslim minority Ismaili community. So it's a sort of minority within a minority. And this is, again, in the context of an urban landscape that is sometimes polarized along lines of of religion or other markers of community belonging, caste or religion or or language. So the problem, uh, as Stroll writes, for Ismailis Um, And as Sultan puts it, is that, quote, we're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. He says, you know, when the riots come, the Hindus say we're Muslim and and then the Muslims say we're Hindus. Right. So for Sultan, the trick is to to constantly manage the contradictory imperatives of belonging and of differentiation um, in this sort of constantly changing and highly fraught and ultimately quite dangerous uh, sort of urban uh, milieu of, you know, sometimes more, sometimes less um, mobilized along communal lines. So maybe I'll, maybe I'll stop there.
1: Yeah, uh, I mean, that's a very profound uh, note to stop on, um, but I will say that this was a very, a really, really, I think uh, provocative part of the book, all the profiles in the section, um, but, In the introduction, you write about the comparative potentials of the book, but you you actually note that you're not writing with the intention of the book to become some kind of easy, um, you know, answer to are these kinds of processes happening in other global South cities. So I was curious to know, were there other kinds of comparative potentials that you had in mind? How do you, I guess, place this book in dialogue with other urban studies scholarship?
0: Hmm. Um, yeah, so I think, you know, as, as I mentioned, just when we were talking about value, I think the first comparative point is historical. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so we le- what we learned was that it's not the existence of brokerage, which is new, but rather the form and content of the expertise that keeps on changing. So, you know, keeping our eye on the gap Um, allows for new insights into the sort of changing uh, world um, and the sort of global present to come into view. So that was sort of one um, comparison, which is not maybe a a sort of spatial or geographical, but rather a a temporal comparison, Mm -hmm. Um, not even a comparison, but a sort of tracking tracking of change. Um, But, you know, the major... One of the major takeaways was methodological, and I've mentioned this before. We learned so much, Sneha, I can't tell you, we learned so much from thinking and researching um, without beginning from these sort of privileged tropes, like you know, mm-hmm. state and society, formal, informal, legal, illegal, sit, citizen and foreigner, right? Mm-hmm. modernity and tradition. Um so, there's not deficiency or failure, but rather you know understanding these um, conjunctures, uh, the sort of the global present. Um, so part of our comparative or my comparative you know research agenda is to think this similar. Bombay question from elsewhere. So what kinds of fraught labor uh, that don't fit neatly into our sort of available scholarly or normative categories? um, You know, what are these, what what is the content of this expertise and labor? Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think one of the things that I've been interested in doing, or not I Think, but I, I know I'm interested in doing it. Uh, it's, um, it's to sort of look around for other cities that seem to be overrun by this kind of thing, right? Work that is illegible to formal job descriptions that is sort of morally ambivalent, ambiguous. So not like other cities that look like Bombay, Right. Right. This isn't like, you know, a, a South Asian city question. It's not like, okay, now we're going to go and look in Delhi. And now we're going <laughs> to look in, you know, <laughs> Colombo. Yes. It's like, that's not it at all. It's not about cities that look like Bombay. It's a different diagnostic. So mm-hmm. where I've ended up, is, or not ended up, but but started really, because I'm, I'm beginning, I'm thinking of this as a broader project. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm working now on a project in the Italian city of Napoli, uh, mm-hmm. where it's quite similarly, it's a city that is, overrun by um, people doing labor and work that does not have a clear job description. And at the same time, there are all kinds of sort of epithets and different kinds of words to describe these kinds of people, much like, you know, in Bombay, you know, you gave us a bunch of words as well, sort of, um, you mm-hmm. know, words that are used. So, uh, you know, it, the book actually has recently been translated into Italian um, mm-hmm. published with Mail Press in Milan just a couple of months ago. And the re- one of the reasons I was really keen on the, the Italian edition was that I've convened a project tentatively titled Napoli Navigators. Uh, oh, wow. We had our first <laughs> writers' workshop here in Napoli. I'm in Napoli at the moment. Um, so we had our first author's workshop in November and we had um, almost 20, I guess maybe 17 uh, contributors. We've now grown, we're almost 30 and we're having our second author's workshop in, um, in April, but it's, uh, you know, a lot of the the anthropologists and writers are um, are also going to be writing in Italian as well, mm-hmm. um, and so it was really important to me that the book that that you know Bombay Brokers be available um, in Italian, so that our our kind of so that the learnings from the Bombay project could be put into conversation with scholars and writers and anthropologists uh, working here um, mm-hmm. in in Napoli who maybe don't have access to English. Quite as um, as readily, uh, and and you know it's really interesting. So so the in the Italian edition, Tommaso Spricoli, who's an anthropologist. Based in Siena, he pointed out in his introduction to the Italian version of Bombay brokers that um, there's a whole bunch of ways that the term broker could be translated into Italian. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, you know, of course, suggests fertile ground for ethnography. We have, you know, um intermediary uh, uh, is probably the most obvious, but also we have mediatore, mediator, or uh, mm-hmm. in agent, agente, as well as we've got um the word trafficker which actually can translate in two ways into Italian that have different valences. We have Mm trafficone, which is kind of shady. And then we have trafficante, which is more overtly criminal. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no really easy way in English to distinguish trafficone from trafficante. And then we've got, you know, some broker like terms that simply don't translate readily into English. Mm -hmm. We have um, uh, ricettatori, receiver, I guess, maybe, or, um, uh, manita- uh, manutengoli, maintainers, which you know have particular valence. Veil- anyway, so what we're doing here is we're we're sort of trying to again take the ethnographic pulse of the city, and this isn't to say that, you know, Napoli is like Bombay. On the contrary, the two cities are so different for so many reasons, not least um, in their sort of overt orientation towards, you know, the project of, you know, world class urban uh, modernity is a very, very different, um, you know, kind of uh, politics of engagement with that kind of, you know, world class city making and and uh, identity and, you know, migration and all these sorts of things. And yet, notwithstanding the fact that there are such different orientations, what we see is that that the city is fraught with all kinds of contradictions in the global present that is animating a city full of um, sort of, you know, work and labor, which is illegible to formal job description. So this is a really generative I won't say comparative case, but it may be like a multi-sided, a multi-sided kind of project. So that's the kind of comparison. There's a couple of other sort of cities that I've had in mind um, mm-hmm. that might be interesting to think with, but you know, it's it takes a lot of work to get to know a new city.
1: Of course. <laughs> like of of <laughs> course. But I was also thinking about this uh, you know the labor that there's no real job description. I was thinking of, I guess the category of the housewife being the OG broker. <laughs> keeping the house and the city and everything moving, I guess, um, without ever being branded as legitimate work, perhaps. Uh, but anyway, I mean, you have already actually talked about the project in Napoli, but um, what else are you working on right now? And what can we expect to read by you in the near future?
0: Oh, thanks for asking. So I'm actually, I'm, I'm here in Napoli at the moment. I was supposed to be in Bombay, mm-hmm. uh, but the pandemic through a wrench in that. So that's why I get to be here, but I am doing two things at the moment. One is I'm working on this uh, Napoli Navigators project. Um, And the other thing is that I'm finishing up a monograph, uh, which I've been working on for many years. And now I finally um, have a little bit of time to sit and write it all up. And it's a book about the theatrical idiom of political communication in Bombay. Mm -hmm. So some stuff that I've been writing about over the years, um, you know, some of my my research about the role of of money in municipal elections or uh, the theatricality of crowds or theatrical crowds or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, paid flag bearers in electoral processions and... Um, some of, of uh those those kinds of things. But yeah, so that's a, that is well underway and I am um planning and trying to be very disciplined, although it's it's being here and starting this new project in Napoli, it's requiring a lot of discipline to wake up and, you know, sit, sit indoors and write on, write this book. <laughs> but I'm going to be very disciplined and get it done before, uh, you know, before I'm hoping to send it off um, maybe in October. So, oh, yeah, those are the two things I have. Um, and then maybe, you know, I also have my eyes and ears open for, you um, other other cities, we might think this question, think this Bombay question. I'm really keen Sneha, to, to, about this project of, you know, thinking a Bombay question from other sites. So I've got a couple of other cities in mind. Antwerp is one that I've been interested in for a long time. Um, Manila, a colleague in Manila who's been, has, you know, read Bombay brokers and said, oh, this would be a really generative and very different sort of thing. So any listener who um, has a great suggestion for a city they work in that is overrun by labor without a job description, um, I would be really keen.
1: Yeah, excellent. Yeah, on that collaborative note, we shall shall end this uh, wonderful conversation. Thank you, Lisa, for taking time out. I really, I mean, thoroughly enjoyed the book, but I also learned so much from this conversation and I I sometimes feel like, you know, I just like want to listen to you talk about everything because you're so eloquent and saying all these like really profound and uh, smart things. Oh. And it's, it's just, yeah, it's great to just listen. Um, so thank you for that.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This has been a tremendous pleasure. And I realize this has gone on longer than um, oh, I meant to, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> all right.
1: Take care. You too. Bye. Hi, um.